0: Well, hey, look, if you're new to our gathering this morning, my name is Tim, and I am the Missions and Discipleship Pastor here at The Exchange. And this morning, I actually get the privilege of kicking off our new series called Prove It, okay? And we're just talking about uh, living like you mean it, okay? So for the past couple of weeks, we've been in James, and we've been talking about what it looks like to have uh, real faith. And so today we're going to continue in James. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 for the next couple of weeks. And we're going to be looking at what it means when that faith proves itself through actions in your daily lives. Um, And so if you have your Bibles with you today, go ahead and turn. We're going to go ahead and jump into James chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 first. Um, And uh, as you guys turn there, I kind of want to just... Set the scene a little bit for you guys. Um, So James, the the guy who wrote this book, is literally the half-brother of Jesus, okay? Um, James is one of the chief um, leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and uh, he's dealing with a whole bunch of people who used to be Jews, but they've converted to Christianity, okay? These are people who have devoted their lives to and memorized a lot of God's law, okay? And all of the traditions and things that surround that, okay? And some of these traditions... Um, cause them to elevate certain classes of people, but then look down on other classes of people. So that kind of brings us to a good spot to jump in this morning. And so if you will, if you'll read with me, we're going to read James 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to that man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But then you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So today we're talking about favoritism. Okay. And let me just be honest with you for a second. When Bryant asked me, hey, would you mind kicking off the series? Would you mind preaching on this? these verses, I, I just want to be transparent with you guys to say that I was a little worried. And the reason that I was worried is because I, I was worried I wasn't going to be able to to speak with passion about this or with conviction because I consider myself to be a person that really, I really don't show a whole lot of favoritism. As a matter of fact, I go to great pains to try to make everybody feel included. Like I, I want everybody to feel valued, you know? And then I thought about the place that I'm going to be delivering this message and I'm like, like this place, the exchange is made up of people from all different walks of life, like all different classes and all different cultures and ethnicities, right? And so that's one of the things that me and Jamie love about this place is that really anybody can come here and feel at home because we don't really, we don't really judge people. Like, like you can come in and feel at home. And then as I started opening the word and I started reading through these verses, man, the Holy Spirit really started making some principles come out to me. And he really started dealing with my heart on some things. And so my hope this morning as we walk through these verses and as we talk about these principles that are shown in these verses, that the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart as well. Okay? So as we look at this verse, James says, don't show favoritism. When you show favoritism, you become judges with evil thoughts. It's important to know that in this era of early Christianity, like it would have been perfectly natural for these converted Jews to show favoritism to some rich man. And to say, oh, there's a rich guy. He's got some influence. Let's put him at the seat of honor at the table. And then here's this poor dirty guy. Let's just put him in the corner. Let's just sit him like over to this other place. The lingerings of those traditions had created some ugly habits that James knew they were going to have to kick these habits. When I think about habits, I think about somebody who's really, really close to me right now who's really, really struggling with a habit. Um, it's not good. Um, they, this habit is, is like an addiction to them. As a matter of fact, whenever they don't get to do the habit or, or be involved in it, they, they lose it, man. They, they have a meltdown. And maybe you have somebody in your life like that that's really, really struggling with breaking this habit, Um and I won't tell you who it is because then it becomes gossip, right? But but I'll tell you what the habit is. It's it's taking a passy. It's having a pacifier. And this this person who I want who will remain nameless, okay? Like if if they don't get a pacifier, man, they will pitch a fit. If look, if they don't have a passy, ain't nobody getting a nap, right? If if they ain't getting a passy, everybody in the car gonna be crying, right? And so like. I've heard all different kind of things like, oh, well, you can just throw it away. Or you can just, um, well somebody else told me, uh, you can uh, just make it disappear overnight, right? <laughs> that works. Um, or you can throw it out the window as you're going down the car. I've heard some people do that. Don't do that. That's littering. Okay, don't do that. I've even heard people go in as far as taking scissors, and they'll cut just a little bit off of the tip of it. And over a period of time, like over a period of days, they'll cut more and more and more until finally the kids just ain't got nothing to hang on to anymore. And it's over with, right? And we got a great links to get these passies from these kids. Why? Because we know that getting rid of the passy brings maturity, doesn't it? When you get rid of that passy, like that's the whole point of getting rid of the passy is to bring maturity. You see, breaking unhealthy habits or having self-control brings maturity. And showing favoritism reeks of immaturity. It reeks of immaturity. And Jesus is calling, um, excuse me, James is calling these believers in the early church at Jerusalem to grow up and stop judging other people. So that brings us to our first principle today. And if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write it down. It's that taking the seat of the judge proves that we don't trust God. Taking the seat of the judge proves that we don't trust God. You see, the very first thing that James mentions in these verses is not to show favoritism. And so I looked it up. Favoritism is the practice of giving unfair or preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. And I know what you're thinking, Tim, is it wrong to have favorites? Absolutely not. But when you show favoritism towards people, it's discrimination. It's discrimination. It's preferring one person over another based on our opinion. You see, I can kind of relate to the early church in Jerusalem in the sense that, like, I show favoritism. I do. When I go into a restaurant and I walk up to the dessert bar, I show favoritism. (laughs) This is going to upset some of y'all, but I overlook the banana pudding. I do. I really do. Like, I know that makes some of y'all mad. I overlook the banana pudding because I'm looking for my favorite. I even overlooked the chocolate cake. That's sad, isn't it? But you know what I'm looking for? Some of y'all are going to understand this. I'm looking for that strawberry cake. Listen, I'm not talking about the store-bought strawberry cake. I'm talking about grandma's strawberry cake. Y'all feel me? The one that's like rich. It's got that rich strawberry flavor, and it's good and moist inside. And they even bake those fresh strawberries in there with it, so then when you find one, it's like finding a little treasure, and it makes you happy inside. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And then it's got that cream cheese, strawberry icing on top. Good Lord. Look, let me tell you, that's what I'm looking for. Why am I looking for the strawberry cake? It makes me comfortable. It reminds me of when I was a kid and my grandma used to make it, right? I look for the strawberry cake because it brings me comfort. It benefits me, right? Yeah? I mean, the cake benefits me, but it's also my preference. Like I could, I could see all the things, but I prefer the strawberry cake. Now, if, it's just, if there's just banana pudding on the, on the bar, is that what I'm going to get? Of course. I'm a fat kid. I like desserts. But if there's strawberry cake, that is my preference. And James is saying that picking favorites based on benefit, comfort, or preference is not how believers are supposed to act. And then when we show favoritism, we place more value on some and less value on others. And he said that that makes us judges with evil thoughts. Have you ever been somewhere that you knew you weren't supposed to be? Maybe you were a kid or, or maybe as an adult, you've been to a place and you're like, man, I shouldn't be here. I know I'm not supposed to be here. And then that feeling, you know that feeling that I'm talking about? Like that feeling of dread where you're just like, I'm going to get caught. <laughs> like I'm going to get caught here and I know I'm not supposed to be here. And James is saying, man, when we, when we show favoritism, we put ourselves in the place of judgment. And see, that place of judgment was meant for God. God who has pure heart and pure intentions. And when we, when we show favoritism, we put ourselves in the place of judgment, in a place that our sinful hearts were never meant to be. And when we show favoritism, we announce to others that we don't trust God in the place of judgment. That we don't trust him in his rightful place as judge. I think you'd agree that it'd be crazy for, for you to be on a, uh, um, a surgeon's table and be operated on and then just to sit up and grab the spout, a scalpel from him and say, oh, it's okay, I can do it. I can do it better than you can. Right? That'd be crazy, right? Or to be in court and be represented in this legal matter that you have no understanding, like you, you, you don't know what's going on, but then for you to fire your lawyer and say, it's cool, you can roll out because I'm going to represent myself. Like, that'd be crazy, right? And in the same way, James says, showing favoritism announces to others that we can do it better than God. I want to be in charge of who I associate with. I want to choose who makes me comfortable. I want to make friendships that benefit me. So by taking the seat of the judge, it proves that we don't trust God. Does that resonate with you this morning? how is your favoritism possibly hindering what God has in store for you through your relationships? Let's continue to read. James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. It says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you are they not the ones who are dragging you to court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? You see, James is saying in this, in this verse right here, in verse 5, that it's the poor and the needy that God chooses. Not the rich, not the ones with money, not the popular. It's the ones who are rich in faith, the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, in God's economy, money and status and popularity, those things don't hold value. The things that hold value are the people who are passionate about the kingdom, the people who are passionate about growing in God. Those are the things that hold the most value to God. Those are the things that are close to his heart. You see, when we show favoritism, we reverse God's economy, and we put value on things that have absolutely no heavenly value at all. And that brings us to our second principle. If you want to write this down, neglecting the poor proves that we don't know God's heart. Neglecting the poor proves we don't know God's heart. Throughout the Bible, the poor are favored by God. So if you're the type that likes to go home and do a little research, write a couple of these scriptures down. I'm just going to spell out some scriptures for you. Ready? In Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, he makes provision for the poor. In Leviticus 19.15, he demands justice for the poor. In Proverbs 29.7, he identifies those who care about the poor as righteous. And that's just to name a few. If you go home and you do a Google search of how God prefers the poor or or, um, provides for the poor, there's tons. The Bible's full of them. then James says, it seems to be the rich that turn on us the quickest. He says they exploit you, and they drag you into court, and they even blaspheme the name of God. You see, there's some people who, when they have a lot, it tends to tends to give them this arrogance or this sense of entitlement, and they feel like they deserve certain things. And when they don't get those things that they feel like they deserve, man, they lose control, even to the point where they They might blame God. And that's not a good place to be. It kind of seems like God has it out for those who have money, right? But think about it this way. Rich is a relative term. Follow me. What we would consider a rich man in the U.S. is totally different from what we would consider a rich man in like a third world country like Somalia. Somalia. And if you were to bring that rich man from Somalia here to the U.S., he wouldn't be rich anymore. You want to know why? Because the economies are totally different. Totally different. And James is trying to help these people understand, and he's trying to help us to understand today that the economies are totally different. And the things that we put value on, they have no value to God. James is saying that God's economy is about something way bigger than money. It's about the whole kingdom of God. Take a look at Proverbs 14.31 with me real quick. It says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs says that helping the needy honors God, but oppressing the poor puts us in opposition to God. You see... It's not the amount of money that somebody has that God's concerned with. You don't care if you're rich. It's how that money affects how you respond to others is what he's concerned about. What James is saying is that being rich isn't everything. And in fact, it can actually keep you from seeing the all-inclusive picture of the kingdom. And it can cause you to respond in a way that doesn't honor God or reflect his heart. So let me ask you, would you say that you're more concerned with your position in the world than your impact on the kingdom? Today, is there arrogance in the way that you live or an acceptance that you crave that puts you in opposition with God? See, when we allow the amount of money that we have or our status with the world to control our decisions, it greatly affects how we love others. It greatly affects how we love others. Neglecting the poor proves that we don't know God's heart. Let's continue reading. James 2, 8-11, it says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. <clears throat> then James says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you should not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. He says in verse 8 that it's impossible to show favoritism and love your neighbor. It is impossible to do both. He said you'll either do one or you'll do the other, but they both can't be true of you. You can't show favoritism and love your neighbor. We can find the commandment to love our neighbor in the book of Mark. Read it with me. Mark twelve twenty eight through 31, it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. James says, if you really keep the royal law, if you really love your, love your neighbor as yourself, what does he mean, royal law? You see, in the book of Mark, this is Jesus, the king of kings, who is backing up a law that was given to us by the creator of everything. It doesn't get much more royal than that, right? And he says when we break this law, when we break this royal law, we sin. No. <laughs> Look, when we break this royal law, we sin. When we show favoritism, we are in sin. And what I hope that you see today is that favoritism, hear me, has less to do with others and it has more to do with you. Favoritism has less to do with others. It has more to do with you. Although it affects others when we sin, it's you that's going to stand in judgment before God in answer to your actions. So the third principle for today is our sin proves that we need Jesus. Our sin proves that we need Jesus. You see, every morning that God allows us to wake up is a fresh new opportunity to live for him. And I guarantee you within that first hour to two hours, if you're anything like me, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to sin. Why? Because we're sinners. You sin, I sin, especially me, right? But James says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So even if you break one law, one tiny law, you're guilty of breaking all of them. It makes you a sinner. It never gets old for me to hear people compare sins. Have you ever heard people compare sins? It's almost like a couple of old guys comparing battle scars. Right? I got this scar right here in the battle of 1929. A grenade went off and some strap. Man, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. Like they'll start talking. And then the other guys over there, man, I got ran over by a tank right here. Look right here. Look in the the battle of 1960. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about, though. (laughs) I was cutting wood and my chainsaw got me right here. You know, like I don't know. But you know how people compare scars. This one's not as bad as that one. And look at this one. And in the same way, we put different levels on sin, don't we? Like we compare sins. Well, I know I I lie, but he lied to his mama, you know? And all the mamas in the room are like, yep, mm -hmm, that's worse. Yep, (laughs) right? Or maybe in the way that we justify gluttony, when we go to the buffet and we're like, man, I paid $29.95. I'm going to eat my money's worth, you know? But then at the same time, we look down on that couple who's pregnant, who are not quite married yet. You see how we put different levels on sin and how we put ourselves in the judge's seat? But the fact is is that God gave us commandments to follow, and to him they're all important, and they're all equal. It really seems like an impossible standard. If you break one law, you break all of them, right? There's not really any question of our guilt. Most of us have broken our fair share of commandments, right? But our hope, our hope is in Jesus. You see, Jesus offers salvation to those who believe, And through the sacrifice that he made on the cross, he offers grace so that one day we'll stand, not in judgment, but in the light of mercy before the King of Kings. The rich need him, the poor need him. We all need Jesus daily. And this is why James says, don't show favoritism. Don't judge between others. Don't discriminate But show the same mercy to others that was shown to you by the Savior. So let me ask you, do you live like you need Jesus? Do you view others through the lens of mercy? Because when you view them through the lens of mercy, it's hard to judge. It's hard to pick favorites. You see, our sin proves that we all need Jesus. So let's take a look at the last couple of verses for today. It's James 2, 12 through 13. It says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Man, if you're taking notes this morning, write that down. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a strong statement. He says, speak and act like you'll receive mercy. And it seems that James is trying to help them him, help him understand is that the law that they've lived by for so long, these converted Jews, the law that they've lived by for so long is only going to lead to judgment. But the law that leads to freedom, the, the sacrifice that Jesus made, that should be their new focus. And some of these people had lived their lives, their entire lives dedicated to the law and living it by the letter. And now to change their perspective wasn't going to be an easy task for James. But he's essentially telling them that the way that they act and speak should be a roadmap to anybody else who's trying to find that law of freedom or Jesus. And then there's a warning. Did you, did you see the warning at the end? It said, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Man, I feel like that's an easy trap to fall into. We all know that person who sets those unreachable standards or those ridiculous rules and then when you don't abide by those rules or you don't reach those standards those people punish you and they judge you and there's no mercy. You know who I'm talking about? You know those people? There's a story in Matthew that frames the idea out perfectly and it's told by Jesus. Let's look at it together. It's Matthew 18:21 through 25. It says then Peter Came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. And he began the settlement. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought into him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me. I promise I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant back in and he said, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all of the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't I have had, excuse me, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. You see, Jesus told this story to help us understand what forgiveness looks like. But he also told the story to help us to understand that our response to mercy should be mercy. And that when we withhold mercy, mercy will be withheld from us. See, more than likely, this is a lesson that James learned from his half-brother, Jesus. That mercy, when you give mercy, you get mercy. And when you give judgment, You get judgment. What James is saying to the believers in Jerusalem is that when we respond to others, it should be our faith on display. When we respond to others, it should be our faith on display. And that brings us to our last principle of the day, if you're writing these down. It's our response proves our faith in Jesus. Our response proves our faith in Jesus It never fails is that when I've received grace, it's easier for me to give grace. You know what I mean? And when I've received attitude, it's easier for me to give attitude. I'm almost like a mirror of sorts, is that I give what I get sometimes. But you know what's crazy? I can tell by the way that I respond whether I've been in the Word that day. I can tell by the way I respond whether I've considered the faithfulness of God in my life that day. Man, when I'm shaken. I can tell if I've been putting the things of the world in because that's exactly what comes out. What comes out doesn't look like anything of what I claim is inside of me. And James says to them, and he says to us today, go ahead, respond, and they'll know exactly what you believe. I don't know about you, but I want my response to prove my faith I want people to know who I belong to based on how I respond daily. How I live my life, how I include others regardless of their status or their affiliation. How I'm honest about my sin and I beg God for forgiveness and and get grace from him and then I turn around and bestow grace on other people even when they don't deserve it because I didn't. So maybe today you say, Tim, how do I live in a way that where my response proves my faith? And I think today the answer is to abandon judgment and to live towards mercy towards other people. To abandon judgment and to live with mercy towards other people. And maybe you, you say, man, I'd like to do that, but I don't know how to get there. I believe that when we experience his grace, it teaches those who receive mercy to then turn and copy it with others. When you've received that mercy, it's much easier to turn and give it. What I'm saying today, and what I think James is saying to us, is that the way we live should be proof of what we believe The way we live should be proof of what we believe. The way that we treat others should be a direct result of how we were treated by Jesus. With grace and mercy without end. Our response proves our faith in Jesus.
1: Thanks for joining us online today. We gather not just to sing songs and hear the teaching of scripture, but we also gather so that we might be changed to live more like Jesus. Through our time today, we pray that you are challenged and encouraged to think about your own life and how you may or may not be living out Jesus' command to follow him. We want you to know that we are available and ready to pray for and encourage you as you seek to know God and what it means to live in relationship with him. To get a conversation started with one of our ministry team members, you can simply text your first name to 601-397-6111 our ministry team would love to pray for you and help you in any way. You can also find reading plans and other resources to help you take next steps in your faith on our website, theexchange.cc. As we close out our time today and prepare to scatter as the church, let's speak out our declaration together. We believe the great exchange took place when Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so we could know God. We exist to see people exchange their old life for new life in Christ and live out their purpose. Christ's love compels us to exchange ideas for truth. God's word is our standard. Selfishness for serving, we will serve others. Pleasing for reaching, we will share our faith. Keeping for dispersing, we will make disciples. Forgetting for celebrating, we will praise God. We are the church.